Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Rushmore is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about Rushmore. Max Fisher is a more than determined student at his prep school, (laughs) Rushmore Academy, where he oversees anything with the word extracurricular. He befriends a preschool teacher named Miss Cross, whom he ends up falling in love with, only to find things take a turn for the worse when his mentor, Herman Bloom, an unhappy millionaire, falls for her as well. As a result, their personal and professional lives spiral out of control, Thank you, Monkey King MA at AOL.com on IMDb. <laughs> He's actually a monkey on a typewriter. He was the one that made sense. But I want to know what is the name, you know, who's it from, that mm-hmm. typewriter? When he looks down at it, I want to see the overhead shot with the little <laughs> thing that said, Is it from his mom? Yeah, I'm proud is it of him. From you. a brother or sister? What's the soundtrack playing over as he types <laughs> that out? You know, who's did the monkey's dead mother buy him a a typewriter? Is that what happened? <laughs> this has been your Wes Anderson question of the day. <laughs> so, what did you think of Rushmore, Levi? I really liked Rushmore. I mm. this brought me out of the funk that I had last week. I I came into it looking to you know kind of get over the emotional dissonance i have with his characters Uh and i think i'm happier for it i think that the the the, his film style really starts to come together quickly and it yeah it does it makes for a much more compelling environment in which he puts these odd characters and it really it sings i think this is a, a fantastic movie and i can you can see why it blew his career just Right yeah. out, uh, in the good way, it not blow it out of the water, it but blew it up, blew it up. He, he blew up, man. Like uh, his visual styles definitely comes to the forefront here, and it gets curated over time. I think that this movie's still a little rough around the edges from an editing standpoint, mm-hmm. and uh, there's just some weird cuts that are kind of awkward and strange. Uh, things that were carried over, kind of from Ball Rocket. But it's definitely getting refined, and there are parts of his visual style that are established in this film that are repeated throughout his filmography. Things like the way that he uses dolly shots, dollying across a large crowd. Um, there's, uh, you know, the zoom-ins of the typewriter, the zoom-in of uh, the the TV dinner. Um just the way he's framing things. He's really starting to come into his own here, and it's a really interesting thing to watch. Uh, the funny thing about this, though, Levi, is that I felt like Jason Schwartzman's character in this movie, Max, reminded me a lot of Dignan from Brottle Rocket. And, and you hated Dignan. I, so I'm watching I, this movie, and I'm like, Levi's going to hate this movie, too, because this kid's basically Dignan. He's not quite as bad. He certainly Hmm. has very similar vices. I think that being a young character Mm -hmm. makes it more plausible and acceptable. I have, Uh I take issue with some of the, (laughs) the romantic relationship that he has with Miss Cross, uh, especially in terms of there are some heebie jeebie moments that in reality don't like are not okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but at the same time, now that we have this, uh, Wes Anderson's color palette is starting to to really mm. form up the the setting, the the mat- odd maturity levels of the cast, regardless of age. Mm-hmm. Um, you're sort of suspended. It's easier to suspend your disbelief regarding mm. the whether or not that's inappropriate because the setting feels sim- it feels like a stage play. He really, you're talking about those dolly shots, you know, kind of the moving mm-hmm. from left to right, a lot of one point perspective shots. Um, you, the curtains, there are curtains that open and close, you know, kind of with the ax and with the months right. yep. um, that really make it feel like you're seeing something on stage. So it's not trying to, 
tell such a serious or it feels as if it's not trying to tell such a serious story and that makes well, it easier bottle rocket's to... not a serious story it's not the, a serious in story many ways, but... this one's way more serious than bottle rocket but it does not have the trappings of uh of this one it it sort of plays itself similar to a your average movie setting which is feels like it's simply trying to mimic reality okay that's fair i mean I just wanted to dig into a little bit because I was concerned. I was like, I was worried that you were going to hate this movie too. And that we were going to be <laughs> 0 for 2 on, on Wes Anderson films. Well, and some of it too, I am actively suspending some of those. Because if we went into every movie and I took issue with the odd emotional development of every character, that's not an interesting conversation repeatedly. So yeah. some of it I'm willing to just move on. and And I think... People who are fans of Wes Anderson do you do eventually? He's not the world's most popular director. There is a a certain uh, moviegoer that loves his stuff, and I yeah. find myself amongst them too. Mm-hmm. But he does not hit mainstream the way other films do, and yeah. so you kind of have to accept his reality when you go to see his films. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's definitely a portrait painter. And the funny thing about this is that I actually liked, after watching this movie, um, I should go back here. Uh, when we went into the Wes Anderson run, in my mind, Rushmore is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Um, I really, really like this movie a lot. Uh, however, going on this journey for direct, watching Bottle Rocket and watching Rushmore... I actually like Bottle Rocket better than Rushmore. Really? Yeah. For a few reasons. Um, One of the things is that we're getting into Wes Anderson here, and we're getting into the style of Wes Anderson, right? And you saw glimpses of that in Bottle Rocket, but kind of this, this style that is... You know, inexplicably, Wes Anderson. Where at the where at the moment, people are making a ton of spoof videos. If Wes Anderson made a horror movie, if Wes Anderson made an X Men movie, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. They're all over the internet. Um, he, like he has almost become a caricature of himself in some ways. Uh, now with that, with his you know progression as an artist, he's recently been nominated for multiple Academy Awards. So I feel like it's being validated in a way that. You know, Tim Burton become a caricature of himself is not being validated, mm-hmm. uh, except for monetarily, because like <laughs> Alice in Wonderland for some reason makes two hundred billion dollars. But um, yep. what I'm trying to say here is that the earnestness of Dignan is something that I found really appealing, and I know it's something that turned you off big time, but I found it really appealing. Like I love how earnest he is, and he's almost he's almost got an innocence about him which makes him endearing. Whereas uh, Max in this movie has no innocence about him and it makes him a little bit grating. Um, And also the stylization, I I fear that we're starting to get to the point where the style is usurping the substance. And I think that might be what you were saying is that I think you're Levi, I think you might be a little bit of a stylophile. Like, you love a good stylized thing, and maybe that's a separation. We're, we watch these stylized directors. You know, our least favorite Guillermo del Toro movies were the ones that were probably least stylized, like Blade Two, mm-hmm. or, you know, or uh, Mimic. Like, they, they are, those those don't come to mind when you watch them as, like, Guillermo del Toro movies. The, one we, the ones we really loved, like Pan's Labyrinth, that's like, boom, Guillermo del Toro just all over the screen, right? Yeah. So... I think that I'm a little wary of it, and maybe it's having gone through watching multiple directors back-to-back-to-back, multiple stylistic directors back-to-back-to-back, that there's something about ensuring that the characters stay trustworthy and believable while the style, you know, takes over. You look at something like Grindhouse, you look at something like Death Proof, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, consensus worst movie of his. That is the most style with the least amount of substance. Yeah, because well, because he's aping a very specific style that is not a ri- all of other Quentin Tarantino's other movies are largely he has written something and his style has paired with it, and his style is mm. generally kind of this amalgamation. But Death Proof, yeah. I think he really tried to hone in on 
one particular uh, genre, and I think that mm-hmm. that hurt him a little bit in terms of how it came across. Yeah, but I would definitely clump in, if you're looking at his career, I would clump in Death Proof with Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2 in terms of his style of that era. Oh, and then, no, but I love Kill Bill No, I'm, not, I'm saying stylistically. You know, we talked about it. He kind of has his L.A. crime story phase, which mm-hmm. is Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. He's got his Grindhouse phase, which is Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, and Death Proof. And then he's got his historical fiction phase, which is... Uh, uh, Inglorious uh, and Inglorious Bastards, Django Hateful Unchained, Eight. and Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. So when you when you block it out, when you block out his career that way, that's just how I'm clumping in Kill Bill with Grindhouse. But that's what I'm a little bit worried about because uh, Max. I mean, he's he's a he's a spunky kid, and he's an interesting character, uh, but he's not really likable. It's kind of his, and it's his mo of his character that he's not really likable. He's he's efficient. He's a leader. He's a visionary. He's a little bit academically lazy, uh, but he's a go getter. He's searching. Um, he's an explorer, but at the same time, he doesn't have a ton of friends. His best friend is a, like a sixty year old uh, multimillionaire steel baron, and he has Dirk yeah. as well. He's got Dirk too. Yeah, that's <laughs> Who, true. He's got. Dirk. I never really under quite grasped the age of the kids around max yeah but, uh, I think well that's the thing is his best friend is like probably eight years younger than him or maybe six or six years younger than him i mean he's definitely like prepubescent and max is 15 so that says something too about max's emotional maturity <laughs> well it's it's easy to kind of struggle with the character and i agree that he's not generally likable they show him active in all of those clubs Mm -hmm. uh which i love that montage going through all of you know they show one and you're like oh he's on the the yearbook committee and then they just keep coming (laughs) and they're getting into the absurd like the the racing club the beekeepers club um and i really enjoyed that as kind of an introduction to this at the beginning you you take it as an introduction to, oh, these are his interests. And by the end, you understand that his interest is having interests. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that's kind of an issue that makes him an issue as a character, he's a habitual liar. And while yes. it's a struggle with that, when you meet his dad, when you find out his mother has died, um, I think it makes it easier to be empathetic with his character because mm-hmm. now you you start to understand why he's struggling with these issues. One of the videos, I mean, just type in Wes Anderson or Rushmore on Vimeo and there's movie, there's plenty of information about like his, they break down his styles and all that. But one of them pointed out that, and I missed this in the film, his Max's house is like right next to the, the graveyard where his mother's buried. And that Hmm. in some ways denotes that he is constantly, in mourning, he's never been yeah. able to remove himself from the death of his mother. Um, yeah. And that's hard stuff. And It is. And, 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 you know, his mother is the reason why he got into Rushmore in the first place. So yeah. in some ways, his identity uh, being tied so closely to Rushmore as an institution is him holding on to the memory of his mother. Oh, you know, I did not stretch the... Uh, I don't know what the word, but that that connection between Rushmore is his mom when he says, especially when he's talking to Bloom and you know Bill Murray who crushed it said uh, Miss Cross is my Rushmore and yeah uh, Max is saying she's my Rushmore too. But if you translate that the next step, one you get something very Freudian and a little bit uh, Oedipin. There's totally an Oedipus. Uh theme running through this movie which is a really a tragic story ultimately yeah uh, and it's it but it's powerful stuff and there's you know that's the one of those themes in literature that mm-hmm. is fairly consistent there's a reason you can use oedipus as a reference point because it gets referenced fairly frequently with the material right. so We've all got mom issues, is what that's saying. Well, and, and also, you know, going back to, you know, when you meet his father, you meet his family, you kind of understand why he's this kind of habitual liar, is he's 
insecure. I mean, he that we open the movie with Bill Murray giving a speech in the chapel to the to Rushmore Academy, and he says, you know, keep the rich kids in your crosshairs. Uh, you know, basically saying there's a bunch of you who are here and you're rich and you'll be fine. But if you're not one of the rich kids, you know, shoot for the moon. And he, that speaks to him immediately because he's not one of the rich kids. He's not one of the privileged kids. His dad isn't driving up in a Bentley, uh, to pick him up. You know, his, his mom isn't picking him up in a Jaguar convertible. He's the one riding his bike home from school or maybe stopping by his dad's barbershop on the mm-hmm. way there. And I love the way that he twists the little lies into half-truths. Like, I like how his dad being a barber turns into his dad being a neurosurgeon. Uh, you know, they're, they're both, you know, holding blades to skulls, but in different ways. Well- um and it gets warped in reality because he, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Murray gives that speech, and that in terms of coming of age tales, you know, he says the the rich kids can't buy backbone, but he yeah. doesn't tell you how you get backbone, and <laughs> so Max is trying to, f- he's just going to kind of flub his way there, you know, he's going to talk his way into a backbone to sound yeah. like he has backbone, yeah, because we it's a it's a major issue with our culture like what we don't have coming of age ceremonies we don't you know we've kind of ended up in adulthood uh, edgar wright we went really deep mm-hmm. into this like at yeah. what point are you good what point are you an adult mm-hmm. and this is showing what i mean it's like when you're young and trying to figure that right. out well, and when you're young and you're and you're trying to speed up the process a little bit, yeah, you want uh, to be older. You're ready for the old stuff. This is, this is. I'm not being test, or I need that. I need the money that comes with age, or the yeah. experience, or the respect of others. Just kind of outright, right? And then it gets weird when you actually hit those milestones, and you're like, oh shit, <laughs> like oh oh god, like when. When you hit certain milestones in your life, it's kind of terrifying because then you're like, oh, I guess I am an adult now. Yeah, when people um, expect you to be an adult, and you're right. like, but wait, nobody but wait. told me how. <laughs> um, you know, we talked last week, and I think it carries over again into this film, although not quite as uh, as eloquently, but the use of music by Wes Anderson, at least in Bottle Rocket, and then at points in Rushmore is very literal. He likes to pick wor- uh, songs that have lyrics that tie directly to the motions of the characters in the scene. And mm-hmm. he does that really nicely at the end of this movie. And it's actually diegetic music. They, you know, he, he points to the DJ. There's a record scratch as they transfer over to the new record. And then they play the song, I wish... That I knew now. I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger. Yeah, and <laughs> this is great. It, and it goes through this idea that pops up in my head quite often because, um, you know, when you get to certain milestones in your life, like when you turn thirty or something, like you, you look back and you're like, oh god, you know, I, I, I feel like I've wasted so much potential. I don't know. There's some like fire burning, at least in me, where I'm like, oh man, if I had just done this when I was 24, uh, you know, I'd be, you know, in a different place now or whatever, you know, but it, it's this idea that the youth, that, that old saying youth is wasted on the young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a running theme in this movie. Youth is wasted on the young. It, it's funny because the main character is 15 years old and I feel like he feels like youth is wasted on the young as well. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely, he definitely tries to bat a, bad above average uh, <laughs> you know and he's not it's just it's it hurts because you're watching this mm-hmm. kid and you want him to succeed because he is you know he's so he's so involved but yeah his lack of application in in everything but his playwriting um and that's right. the part i really enjoy is when you mm-hmm. see him truly apply himself and that's some of it is a Wes Anderson theme, the the mm-hmm. fact that there are all of these little uh, abilities that he has, these little relationships, yeah. and they mm-hmm. come into play for the most part. There's a there, you know, they throw out so many clubs at the beginning, but like the beekeeping, the fact that he's yeah. able to apply that in his revenge with Bill Murray, uh, 
there's just a lot of that where you get little pieces and they yeah. don't the hole is not obvious but they at the right moment they get applied um yeah i mean i want to i want to go back to kind of this idea though that like uh you know he's he's young and yet he doesn't have any ties to like young people even as even dirk who is probably i would say like i don't i don't know how old dirk's supposed to be in this movie I, I started at seven. He's definitely not seven. <laughs> He's probably like I'm guessing eleven or twelve, maybe. I don't guessing know. Like I can't help you. I'm terrible with I don't kids know. at that age. I don't know. I'm guessing like ten to twelve years old. But even he is like shooting above his uh, weight class in terms of maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you know all of the women in this movie, and I think it goes back to this kind of Oedipal complex because. He lost his mother at a young age, and he's trying to maybe fulfill a uh, adult female love that was stolen from him as a child. Um, But like all all of the women in this movie that are spoken to, you know, a lot of like if you had a high school movie, a lot of it would be about talking about the hot girls in school. Now this is an all boys school, so Mm -hmm. there are no hot girls in the school. Um, But there's no talk of like girls in the school who are the same age as the characters in the movie, all of the kind of sexual talk or feelings or innuendo is pointed at older women. It's either pointed at uh, Dirk's mom (laughs) or it's pointed at uh, Miss Cross. Yeah. Um, So there's this idea that like, uh, I I just love the scene where, where Miss Cross confronts Max in her classroom when she's moving out. And she's like, what would we do? Would we have sex? And you kind of see this fear strike over his face. Like, the idea of actually having sex with a grown woman is terrifying to him. Well, because <laughs> it's this romantic, romanticized idea in his head, but in practice it's something that's completely different. Uh, you know, a 15-year-old virgin having sex with an adult woman is is terrifying to him. Um, it, it, so it's it's like these fantasies that he's trying to play out. But And even when they talk about Dirk's mom, it's in the form yeah. of hand jobs that's exactly. really the one thing they can speak with comfort about right. that's about as far as they get like, yeah dirk's mom gave totally me a right. hand job mic drop yeah and then they're like i love i love how they use the the term hand jobs to refer to sex like uh when dirk um tells max that while he was sleeping on the front porch miss cross and mr bloom we're giving each other hand jobs. Yeah, they're it's they were skinny dipping, giving each other hand skinny jobs. Dipping. Yeah, which is a great. I mean, it's hilarious because it is. It's kind of this like immature idea of sex. Um, so yeah, that I you know, in talking about it, I think that that kind of Oedipal complex comes through. Uh, and then it's interesting because I do feel like at the beginning, Mrs. Bloom was, uh, or not Mrs. Bloom, Mrs. Cross was. Uh, she was enjoying the attention at the very least of max um Mm -hmm. and they have that interaction in the library where she says you know you're far too young for me but then they like do the handshake at the end and there seems to be i mean it does seem to be a semblance of a connection there well um there's also the moment when he comes over to her house and she he has the uh the bloodied forehead that he made up with his stage makeup um, and there's that very tender moment between the two and he like kisses her and then she pulls away, but she's still very close to him. And then she realizes it's fake blood and kicks him out. Well, they um, have the most, there are less sexy ways to tend a wound for right. a child who is half your age. So <laughs> that one was kind of on her. Absolutely. I mean, I, first of all, if a kid comes in from the rain and lays down in his wet clothes on your bed, you kick him in the face. <laughs> you have another wound. I'm saying this particular child because he's overstepping his bounds in more ways than one. Yes, but um, now your bed is also wet. Yeah, I do love this idea. Yeah, I mean, I, that's all I could think of. I was like, that comforter's got to be drenched. <laughs> um, but I do like this idea, too. I watched a YouTube video, which was poorly implemented, but it talked about the subject of situational blindness. And, like, if you ask somebody, if you request something from somebody, they'll be focused on fulfilling that task. And then you can do, uh, you could kind of, like, pull pull a fast one on them. They're, so the video that I watched is, like, they would ask these groups of people, like, 
where's the you know where's the the market square a block over that everybody mm-hmm. knows where it is and then while the while they were giving him directions he would like hand them an orange and then he'd walk away and then they'd have like an orange in their hand they'd be like how did this orange get in my hand <laughs> situational yeah. blindness and and that happens when he comes in there because he pops the tape into into the radio and there's music playing that wasn't playing there before and yet she doesn't quite notice that yeah it's it well, so and i chalked it up to just an andersonian setting mm-hmm. the scene you know it was a intentional choice to have her but that's true that there is such and i think it's like a sleazeball move too that they do things yeah. that max is actually doing uh like that so it's yeah, it's it's well, he's continually overstepping his bounds because he doesn't he doesn't understand um how to actually interact with people. It's so interesting because his plays are like straight up just Alp or or um Martin Scorsese basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, straight out of a Scorsese or a Coppola or whatever. Um and and so it's funny, like he has some kind of tie and he has some kind of understanding to the drama that sets itself in a crime story or in a war story, but he doesn't have the emotional maturity to actually understand his own limitations uh, as a 15-year-old boy. And because of that, he has been able to strive beyond those limitations in some ways, but he's completely stunted in other ways because he's not allowing himself to go through personal growth in a meaningful way. He's doing it in more of a superficial way. Well, it's the the idea that kids watch things on TV or the movies and they want yeah. to emulate it. And movies are, they're not totally dissociated from real life. We have dramatic moments every day, but a, mm-hmm. a movie scales it up and that warps the perspective. So you see a movie and you go, my life's not that interesting. I don't have an Iron Man suit uh, I'm not curing weird diseases that have come from another <laughs> realm. So it, your life feels somewhat dull by comparison, when in yeah. reality the movie is drawing on common themes that we all experience. When you have a kid like Max who is watching these very serious films, he mm. is in a lot of ways searching for he wants that high level drama the way that he comports yeah. himself around the school that he even when he's talking to uh bloom about the aquarium i want to go in armed so that you know <laughs> when i make my speech to the board it's convincing he's making speeches to the board in a way that you right see in films and when he does his stage plays you can start to sort of understand where he's getting it from what his influences are without explicitly telling us this kid watches too many movies <laughs> yeah it's great and and i do think there's some kind of correlation there between wes anderson as a filmmaker and max as the playwright but i think it also goes back like you said i mean his plays are amazing and people love them and he's got notoriety based on his plays, and he's able to bring that notoriety even to Grover Cleveland High School, Go Owls. Um, <laughs> which is funny because it's a school play, but it has people from Rushmore Academy in it. So yeah, I, <laughs> that, you know, I missed that. It kind of went over my head. Yeah, but uh, but those plays are also something that connects him to his mother because his mother believed in his playwriting. And... You know, not every second grader writes a one-act play about Watergate, but <laughs> there's something about getting motivated or getting positive reinforcement when you're at a young age, and I think that's something that his mother really appreciated about him, and so he latched onto that and and made sure that he honed that skill moving forward. Like, I, it's very interesting to me this whole idea of of him trying to fulfill the love of his mother through. Rushmore Academy and through Miss Cross and through um, just about everything that happens <laughs> in this film. <laughs> everything it's, that he touches. Yeah, it's kind of tied to that. Um, um, I mean, even Dirk's mom. He... Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, even even Dirk's mom, like, you get a semblance. I mean, obviously she's a beautiful woman, but you get this semblance that, uh, that he is very respectful of her in terms of Dirk. Like, he doesn't have this kind of... Um, 
you know, lust for her that all of the other boys at the school have for her. Mm-hmm. But he has to try to fulfill that lust in order to fit in with other people. Um, and, and, you know, he, he talks to his dad in this, earlier in the film where he's like, you know, I'm just not it, it, romance is not my forte seems like it, all everybody thinks about is scoring chicks but it's not my forte and uh and so he's trying to fit into that paradigm as well um when he's what he's tr- what he's really trying to do is find kind of actual feminine love from somebody um, well, i don't think he's getting from his dad yeah <laughs> well he said his dad you know says you're a, a clipper ship captain you're married to the sea yeah which is this really it's really kind of a tragic notion. Yeah, the absolutely. idea that you have no place to call home, like that's, and mm-hmm. I'm surprised we didn't hear. Uh, oh, what's that song about? It's the it's the same story. It's about yeah. the guy who comes into port and mm-hmm. uh, Brandy, you're a fine girl. Mm-hmm. What a good wife you'd be. But my life, my love, and my lady is this. It's right. That's a sad notion because you'll never have that that love ultimately but um, then when you think about it if you think about rushmore as a as a proxy for his mother he's actually more married to the idea of fulfilling some kind of um expectation uh that his mother had for him or hope that his mother had for him and that's actually what he's emotionally tied to he's not he's he's superficially tied to rushmore but he's emotionally tied to the love of his mother yeah and he's trying to trying to fill that that's yeah. uh and we're pulling all of this from uh, the sort of the secondary material. They really mm-hmm. don't reference his mom a <laughs> right. bunch. We don't get a his dad talking to Bloom saying, "Oh, when his mother died, you know, he took it really hard. He really yeah. dove into his playwriting." And that's a a Wes Anderson thing. Uh, somebody mentioned it. Um, Freddie from Texas mm-hmm. in the forums brought it up with the fact about. Uh, Herman being super rich and we don't know how he came into his money, whether he was born into it, whether he made his own steel empire. All we know he's rich and that allows his character to ha- take these, take particular actions. Yeah. And everything else we have to sort of fill in based on his actions. And that's something that I think for most of his movies, we don't get, <laughs> exposition we have to draw it from kind of everywhere around we had it with last mm-hmm. week with uh luke wilson's character we don't know why he's in you know uh an asylum we just know that he's there and it, he says exhaustion but we know it was of his own recognizance mm-hmm. um but owen wilson thinks he's trapped there so maybe there is something to that uh it's <laughs> it's a it's really difficult to write, I imagine, characters well, it, where you show everything. Yeah, you don't need to. I mean, there's he he you know, feeds into tropes. There's the rich guy trope, and there a wealthy, uh, ambiguously wealthy person, which which Freddie brings up is 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 a theme in his movies. Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter where the wealth came from, but wealth is it's an enabler of plot because you can move things forward. Um, you know, it's uh, but we see that in Bottle Rocket as well. Um, is it Bob? Is that his name? Yeah, his Bob was also ambiguously yeah, wealthy. Ambiguously wealthy. We don't. There's nothing you know pointing to it. At least we know that Mister Bloom has a steel empire. Um, but it's great because he's a multimillionaire, but he also works in this really dimly lit fluorescent office. <laughs> you know, in this gigantic steaming warehouse. So there's nothing like gl- glamorous about his uh, work life, and yet he drives a Bentley to work every day. Um, th- th- there's interesting things. Like, let's talk about Mr. Bloom for a little bit because he's the opposite, right? He is, instead of the child that's trying to act like adult, he's the adult that's trying to act like a child in some ways. Yeah, he wants to be Benjamin Button. Yeah, it, that I, it was funny when you brought up Mary to the Sea. That's what reminded me of Benjamin Button. Like when he, you know, when he's in like when he's like his sixty-year-old form, he's like he's in Russia and he's like married to the sea. The whole thing with him and Tilda Swinton. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, uh, but yeah, he is. He's he's trying to Benjamin Button. So these two people are in this 
shift where they're one's trying to be a child, the other one's trying to be an adult. And that's what I kind of like about the way that Rosemary addresses that love triangle, if you want to call it that, because she doesn't want either of those things. She wants, well, she wants her ex-husband, or she wants her uh, deceased husband back. Mm-hmm. Um, but she isn't in the mood for a child trying to act like an adult or an adult trying to act like a child, which I yeah. think is good. It It's... And it, it's an interesting s- symmetry, and I think we mm-hmm. get that a lot visually from Wes yeah. Anderson, and mm-hmm. it's something to watch for if we get it in terms of characters. I think there's often opposites yeah. kind of at at uh, at odds, uh, and I enjoy how they address that relationship with, you know, Max isn't they fight in the middle, but ultimately they kind of understand each other right. from the beginning with Max's just general attraction to Herman based on his, his speech. But then he's leaning in the car and Herman's asking him, how do you, how'd you figure it out? What's mm-hmm. your secret? Yeah, what's to which secret, Max, Max Max spouts some totally bullshit motivational poster line uh, because he doesn't know. Well, <laughs> I don't necessarily it. think that that's just a bullshit line because he says, you know, find the thing you love and do it for the rest of your life. I think it's basically the summation of what he's talking about. And uh, I think Bloom is somebody who has spent the, his whole life doing something he doesn't like. And uh, Max is somebody who's really trying to discover what he loves. And we, he, I mean, he loves the theater. He, that's what he's great at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's, there's, you know, it is, it is a kind of a bullshit motivational line because it's something you're asking a 15 year old, the secret of life. Yeah. Which is a dumb, it's a futile exercise. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it, it, I think that it, it, it speaks to who they are as a character. And I think that that's, there's a lot of regret in bloom. I, I love the scene where they show his kid's birthday party that Max wasn't invited to. <laughs> yeah. And you see this like bu- gigantic, beautiful pool that is just been, it looks like a, uh, a pool at the, um, at the Rio Olympics. <laughs> it's like the, it's dark green. It's got leaves in it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's been completely neglected, and yet he still swims in it, which is kind of disgusting. But this thing is, like, evergreen green. Um, and it shows, like, he's got all of this kind of glamour built up around him, but it's, you know, fallen to the wayside because he's disinterested in it. I th- I think where they parallel the, mm-hmm. in the find what you love and do it the rest of your life, yeah. the issue is that I think Bloom misinterpreted that for a lifestyle he found a lifestyle he loves and so he wanted to maintain that the rest of his life and now he's got kids he doesn't like his wife's not into him um, and he's totally unhappy the issue max is suffering from and what would lead him to be bloom ultimately you know kind of a ghost of christmas future is that he's 15 if i ask my kid Right now, what does he love? Do it yeah. for the rest of your life. He, it'd be chewing on napkins. Uh, so <laughs> you know, asking a fifteen-year-old to settle on something that they truly love is that—that's the problem with that line. Is that mm-hmm. it? It makes it's saying, "What do you love right now?" When in reality, you're different every day. And one of the more sane things I've ever read from Hunter S. Thompson was a. A letter to uh, a nephew or something asking, you know, what I need some inspirational words. I'm graduating from high school. And Hunter S. Thompson said, you and I'm paraphrasing brutally here, but you're going to make plans. You're going to have these expectations, but the person you are tomorrow is not going to have those same plans and expectations. So don't be beholden to them because that's, that's crazy. There's no reason to. You're a different person. Make new plans and aim for those, but don't set a goal and aim straight for it because yeah. you're not you're not going to be that person when you get there. And that's mm-hmm. ultimately the regret I think that Bloom feels and I think he feels he knows that he is successful, but that success didn't bring him whatever he was looking for. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know, I have stops and starts and goals and all this stuff. And 
it's it's very inspiring to look at people who are able to focus on a singular goal and achieve it. So you look at somebody like Elon Musk, mm-hmm. you look at somebody like Steve Jobs, you look at somebody like uh like, you know, Usain Bolt. Um, you know, people who uh have this kind of singular vision and are able to create amazing things through that singular vision. Um, over time, I think I've kind of realized that I'm not those people. But and while I have fits and starts, and while I have you know goals that get achieved and goals that fall by the wayside, where I've ended up at least currently in my thirty plus years on this earth is, uh, is a pretty good place. And it's not a place that I would shoot for as a goal. You know, it's not something that I plan for. But where I'm currently sitting is a pretty pretty cool place to be. Um, so I think there's a lot, you know, kind of there's a lot of wisdom in that in in pursue passions but be open to new experiences because you never know what will actually fulfill you. Yeah. So it's and it's a tough thing. It's hard yeah. to put that into words and to inspire someone and to be clear because <laughs> It's such a different path. Everybody has different means. Um, So not even everybody. I think that one of the greatest advantages I had in life was that my parents actually, you know, allowed and pushed me to do what I wanted to do, do what I enjoyed doing. Not everybody has that option. Some people, you need to survive first and that takes it out of the equation and that's Mm -hmm. really unfortunate. So absolutely. I do like some of the uh, parallels that you see in this movie between Bloom and Max. Just off the top of my head, mm-hmm. there's two that come to mind. Um, one of them is uh, where Bloom is... Like, the first time we see Max in his daydream sequence, he's basically, like, reading the stock section uh-huh. in the newspaper. <laughs> and then, like, we later see Bloom reading the stock section in the newspaper when the bees come in. Um, and then there's, like, this scene where Max kind of creeps on... Uh, Miss Cross the first time that he sees her where he like peeks his eye in the slit of the door to like Mm -hmm. see her reading a way too advanced book for for (laughs) first graders to first graders yeah um and he like kind of snoops on her and then later in the movie we see uh Bloom snooping on her while talking on the cell phone to Max saying she's not that beautiful she's not that intriguing (laughs) Um, so I like I like how they mirror the two, um, and I, that's what makes the ending to this movie kind of strange to me. Because the implication I think is that Bloom and Miss Cross end up together, at least at the end of the movie. But I, you know, I don't attribute a long term yeah. ending to or a long term stasis to anything at the end of a Wes Anderson film it fe- because right. so many moment to moments in the movie feel ephemeral and temporal yeah. you know you're you right. get to the end of the movie and you're like well this moment in this moment everybody's yeah. happy but if i were to project i don't know that anything really stays and that's a that's a powerful emotion to convey with so only two hours not even that 90 yeah. minutes not yeah this was a relatively short movie i think this movie was shorter than bottle rocket yeah um, bottle rocket was i think an hour and 40 but yeah and then luke wilson's character as well he invites him to the play which there's i think there's an implication at least that him and and miss uh, cross are interested in one another mm-hmm. um so there's it's just it's really interesting to me i mean uh, there's also miss cross who's a very complex character because she is doing a very similar thing. I mean, she's mirroring Max in the way that she's coping with the death of her spouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, in order to feel closer to him, is going back to teach at the school that he went to. Uh, she donates the book that he, his, his Jacques Cousteau book, to the library. Uh, she sleeps in his room, surrounded by his things in a twin bed. Um, so that was interesting that there was a twin bed in the house, but, uh, it's neither here nor there, but she sleeps in the room with him. Like there is, uh, she, she's, she feels this connection to him and she's trying to fulfill this connection by trying to be close to the things that he was close to. However, it doesn't end up working in her favor because she does end up kind of quitting that, 
<laughs> she quits Rushmore because of the f- creepy stuff that's going on with this student. And the the, you the know. sexual harassment, yeah, <laughs> occurring yeah. at the hands of Bloom and Fisher. <sighs> it's uh, it's it's tricky for her, and I really like her as a character because. I feel like she's really easy to root for in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Max and Bloom are both curmudgeons and overstep their bounds constantly and smoke on school property, which I don't really understand how that's legal. <laughs> this was 1998. Uh, right. Things were different. Everybody smokes in this movie too, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I thought her character was interesting as well. I think that she has that kind of, she she's able to play that kind of wisdom that makes her very intriguing as a character and makes you kind of drawn to her in a similar way that Max and Bloom were, but hopefully in a bit of a less creepy way than they were. Yeah, it's... You know, I think over time... Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson is a little bit inter- male-heavy in terms of characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he does write, I think good female characters because when cross one, she doesn't let max really creep on her too long. She calls him out in the library right. mm-hmm. um, and tries to put him in his place. And then when she, when he comes to the classroom and she corners him, like you were saying, basically laying out in front of him, like, what do you think mm-hmm. is going to happen? Are we going to have sex? Yeah. Uh, you know, she doesn't hold back. She really lays out, the reality of the situation. I'm trying to remember Max's line when he goes, well, when you, you know, you, that's a little bit of a crass way of putting it. Uh-huh. And she goes, not when you've, not when you've been there, not when you've done it. Right. <laughs> it's exactly. not as crass as you think. Right. Um, yeah. And it's, I enjoyed that. She wasn't exposes his, his inexperience. Yeah. And she yeah. treats bloom the same. She puts bloom when he gets mm-hmm. shitty, she tosses him out and really wants nothing to do with him. And, well, I think that he got shitty because she tossed him out, though. When we see him at the hospital and he's extremely disheveled and <laughs> smoking a cigarette <laughs> and drinking in the hospital. Yeah, hiding I think his beer cans in piles yeah. of towels or scrubs or something. I think that's his way of coping with her dumping him. But it, it is the same thing. She saw through it. You know, She says, you two deserve each other. Because they really do. Like I said, they're, they're, they're the yin and the yang. They're the old man trying to be the young kid, and they're the young kid trying to be the old man. Um, aside from that, though, uh, another female character in this movie, Margaret Yang. Yeah. So Margaret Yang is an interesting character in this film because, first of all, I don't think... I, I'm not rooting for anybody to end up with Max. Um. I like that they throw in the little plot for her that she faked all of her science fair results. Yes. Which is something that Max would totally do. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that's kind of a way to make them endearing to one another. Um, but she, you know, I guess that she's also, she's an intellectual at this school and she is drawn to him because he's, he asked to stand up and give a speech in class. Um, and I'm just kind of, I feel kind of bad for her character because Max is so caught up in his Oedipal complex that he doesn't understand that this is the type of person he should be uh, going through life experiences with at this point, not not a 30-year-old woman. Yeah, she's much more age-appropriate. And yeah. character-wise, she is fitting for him because she's challenging, she's... Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it comes out that she lied about her science project, even more so fitting. Oh, yeah. good. They, they're they both trying to achieve something <laughs> under pressure. Uh, and they, they're trying to find a way to, to reach that goal, even if they are literally incapable, physiologically unable to reach this, wherever that bar has been set, it's been yeah. set out of the reach of a 15-year-old kid. And I yeah. love the trope when he takes off her glasses. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of making fun of every movie in the 90s yeah. where the girl's obviously hot, but, oh, take mm-hmm. off her glasses and we've got a makeover. Yeah. She goes like, no, she was attractive <laughs> with the glasses on, too. Exactly. Yeah, she goes from a nerd to a fox like, but immediately. obviously, Max is looking in a much more uh, clinical manner. He's trying right. to size her up for his for his. <laughs> 
Serpico? I don't know if that was the Serpico movie. But... No, that wasn't the Serpico. This was a different one. Also, use, utilization of the N-word, which I thought was a little yeah, jarring. They threw that out <laughs> with the child, which was yeah. really caught me off guard. That one caught me off guard, but it also shows... I think it plays to a couple things here. I think it plays to that idea that... Uh, that Max watches too many movies. And remember, this is like, this is 98, so this is post Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown. So it's probably a little bit of a um, of a nod to Max watching way too many movies and trying to get his, uh, his real-world examples via fiction. Yeah, and that reminds me of, there was a line from later on. It Again, it showed this, idea of trying to be how kids try to be mature but where Mm -hmm. it kind of where the gaps in their knowledge shine through when he's talking about beating up buchan Mm -hmm. and he's like i'm gonna kick that irish kid's ass and the kid goes he's from scotland yeah and max doesn't even flinch he goes well tell that stupid mick it's like no you don't you're messing up your racial stereotypes and your slurs He's actually a Mac. He's from <laughs> Scotland. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. There's, there's, there's things in this movie that are kind of like I love it. Actually, that's one of the things I loved about Stranger Things was that the kid said shit. Like that's one of the things I love about movies from the '80s is that kids said shit because you could say shit <laughs> in a PG movie back then. Uh-huh. Once they came along with that PG-13 movie, you couldn't say shit in a kid's movie anymore. Oh, really? That separated it out, huh? Yeah, I mean, you got the Goonies. They say shit in the Goonies. You got Stand By Me. They say shit all the time. I think they say shit in the Sandlot. Like, shit is... <laughs> it, it used to be a very common term in kids' movies, and now it's completely gone. So there's something that's kind of endearing about kids saying shit because it is that thing of, like... They're trying to be adults, and they're completely failing on the face of it because they're literally four and a half feet tall. But <laughs> there's something that's interesting about them when they say shit to each other, not when they say shit to adults. That's like mm-hmm. a weird thing. But when they say shit to each other, it's like them experimenting with adulthood with, with their little cohort, which is kind of fun. Yeah, which is a um, dangerous group to experiment with because nobody has a reference point. You're literally yeah. you're playing Calvin Ball with each other. Nobody it's, knows the rules. <laughs> Whoever is most confident wins in that scenario. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, the, I do love the beginning of this movie, though. I, I think as a uh, as a piece of screenwriting, there's. I feel like this is a great study piece to people who are trying to learn how to do screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Because the introduction of Max as a character is so interesting. Like, we literally start the movie inside Max's head in a dream sequence. Yeah. Then he wakes up and... In the dream sequence, he solves this ge- geometry problem that's never been solved by anyone before. Mm-hmm. And he solves it, and he's the king of the school. And then he wakes up, and here's the speech from Bill Murray. Uh, he goes out of the chapel, and he introduces himself to Bill Murray's character. And then he leaves, and Bill Murray turns to the headmaster. Guggenheim. Guggenheim, and says, you know, that's, that's an interesting kid. And then Guggenheim says, he's literally the worst student we have. <laughs> I love- and then we go from that to the montage of him in all of his clubs. And so you can see he's a complex person. It's not that he's a slacker. He's just not very smart. Well, he has or, other interests. He, he yeah. bounces around. He's too focused on other things to put in time and studying. And-, and and then you see him kind of rise to this status of like king of the school. I mean, he's dictating curriculum, for Christ's sakes, at this school. He becomes this kind of alpha king of the school. And then at the moment where he is at his most is at his highest apex, he gets expelled and then sent to Grover Cleveland, which is like a great plot point one. I mean, it is like the definition of a plot point one in a movie. So I, I love the way he's introduced. And then I love the way that this follows screenwriting conventions to, to craft an interesting story, but then subverts them stylistically by throwing on a bunch of Wes Andersonisms. Yeah, it's, and hats off to uh, Brian Cox because he played the yeah. best headmaster ever, especially in his his defeated the way he sighed about everything, <laughs> even dealing. And you know, I don't know if it was an intentional reference to Animal House, but when he tells him you're on sudden death probation, oh yeah, you think of you're on double, double secret, secret probation. probation. 
Yeah, I love um, that. But I love it when he's in the hospital and he has a stroke and he wakes up <laughs> gets Max. Fisher! Yeah. <laughs> he knows trouble's in the room. Right. Well, and even... I, there are just little things. The way that Max moves through the culture of the school reinforces right. the... So, when they talk about Japanese coming in and Latin mm-hmm. being dead and Max complains about, I've been trying to get Latin removed for five right. years. That's a long time for a child to be making an effort to change the curriculum at a school. Yeah. Especially uh, yeah. regarding a language. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. And then now Latin is required for all students, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Um, how he starts to try to paint this stuff. The aquarium is super hilarious. I love the idea of the aquarium without any permits or <laughs> yeah. building codes or planning... <laughs> Like, we're just going to take out the third baseline and put an aquarium. <laughs> yeah, and we get to see Andrew Wilson. I think right. this is the last time we see him in a Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you doing? We're going to have to move your ball field over a few feet. Yeah, well, we might have to move it. <laughs> I thought that was great. And I love, also, we need to, we should mention this. The script is written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson again. Yeah. So... Owen Wilson's got his fingerprints on here. I want to see this because, like I said, I found a lot of similarities between Max and Dignan um, in terms of their like overconfidence, their social uh, unawareness, their um, their you know their their ability to rope other people into their schemes. I felt like they were very similar characters. So I know that Owen Wilson doesn't write all of Wes Anderson's movies with him. And I'm going to be interested to see if this Dignan, Dignan trope fall, uh, you know, pops up in the future and if it goes away once we start seeing Wes Anderson uh, writing his own films by himself. Yeah, it's, it'll be. I'm curious to see as we go through, as Owen Wilson comes in and out, the effects that he has on screen in comparison to yeah. the script. But yeah. also, I think you're right in this idea that Dignan and Max have a lot in common. I think we get that in a lot of repeat characters. Uh, and uh-huh. Bloom has some of the... Well, Bloom wasn't motivated enough. Um, now I think about it. But I think that trait, the idea of the energetic go-getter, regardless of... Or preferably lacking in the skill mm-hmm. set required to achieve mm-hmm. uh, their end goals, I think that's something that's going to repeat over and over. Even Life Aquatic, I think about it... You know, Zisu is famous, but everything we see him do is generally, uh, stri- it's based on his force of personality more than anything. Exactly. We're, we don't see no, any totally. skill set around his marine biology. Yeah, it's charisma. All these guys have like charisma. They're like 17 charisma, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, they're rocking plus, plus two charisma, maybe plus three. Deep uh, D&D maybe D&D dives at Wes Anderson D&D. Somebody do that sketch next. There you go. West <laughs> yeah, I ultimately enjoyed my watch here, and I'm excited to see how this dovetails into the Royal Tenenbaums because in some ways I feel like the Royal Tenenbaums is his kind of pulp fiction in some ways. Yeah, it seems... It, it, it's, it's like the one... It's the movie that... You know, it came out when I, I think in 2001, so I was like 16 when that movie came out, and it was a big deal when it came out. It was like the rebirth of the indie movie movement. Uh, you know, there was that big kind of push early in the late 80s and early 90s with people like Soderbergh and, and Tarantino, mm-hmm. uh, and then there was like the secondary push in the early 2000s, and I feel like, um, I feel like Royal Tenenbaums is a big movie for Wes Anderson, and I, and I fear that a lot of people don't actually think that. So that's just a personal perception that I have, and I'm interested to see how that plays out over time because I, I think that that's a pretty big landmark film for Wes Anderson. I am so excited to watch it again. It's been years, and I remember it carrying. It was one of it was the first Wes Anderson I think I saw, and when I came uh-huh. out of it, it was a very unique movie in its ability to emotionally affect me in the sense that yeah. I just came away just kind of, you know, feeling drained and it wasn't yeah. necessarily in a negative, but you really like, wow, that was <laughs> unique in terms of a movie going experience. And I think movies since then have tried to achieve that. They try and play yeah. on these 
rougher, these themes that are a little bit darker and not happy endings. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're a little more common thanks to Wes Anderson. Yeah. And I like, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's set in a microchasm of New York city. Uh, there's, there's just a lot of interesting things about it. Like I, I feel like, have you seen any Noah Baumbach movies? I don't I'm think so. I'm a big so. fan of Noah Baumbach. Um, his most recent movies are like Francis Ha, Mistress America. Um, he did Greenberg, which is a, um, Greenberg is a, uh, uh, Ben Stiller movie. Um, it's like an indie movie. Uh, and I, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. He actually co-wrote Fantastic Mr. Fox. So he does know. Oh, wow. He knows this guy, but, uh, oh, and he wrote Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou as well. Well, this makes a lot more sense <laughs> because I feel like uh, Royal Tenenbaums, and we should probably talk this next week during Royal Tenenbaums, but I feel like Royal Tenenbaums and The Squid and the Whale are very similar movies thematically, mm-hmm. although they're they're done completely differently stylistically. So this is interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Not to mention that he kind of looks like Adrian Brody's scruffy brother <laughs> Noah Bombach is a he's a kind of under the radar pick for me for a future direct run because I really like his movies the, uh, Mistress America is a great film and I really encourage a lot of people out there to go see it because I feel like it's the best commentary on millennials has been done in fictional Ooh, narrative film that's quite a statement it's really good it's you know I feel like a lot of people get millennials wrong I feel like he hits millennialism right on the head with that movie Wow. Yeah, I have not. None of these are familiar. Although the Ew. the squid and the whale, I remember there being a ton about. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a bunch of fanfare around it, but I never saw yeah. it. Well, anyway, it's a good opportunity if you get the chance. Uh, and uh, we're we're gonna be watching Royal Tenenbaums next week. So, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, please do go to forums.baldmove.com, chat with us there, or send us an email directpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read it on the air. And until next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.